Matthew 18:21 through 19:15, page 8:23, the parable of the unforgiving servant. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant i forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as i had mercy on you and in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt so also my heavenly father will do ev do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart now when jesus had finished saying these sayings he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came to him and tested him, saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Then children are brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, 
for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. The word of the Lord. Monich and Hope, it's good to be with you this morning. And before we turn to this text, as, as we continue our series in Matthew, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel that it proclaims. We thank you that it presents us with and gives us your son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that all the words that follow would be faithful to your intentions to this text and that through it you would minister Christ Jesus himself to our heads, to our hands, to our hearts by the work of your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, today's passage begins with a question from Jesus, sorry, from Peter to Jesus. Peter asks, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as 77, sorry, as many as seven times. And how is it that Jesus answers Peter? He says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. As theologian Peter Lightheart points out, Christ's response here is actually an allusion to Genesis 4. We find in this chapter Lamech, a descendant of Cain. We read here, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Lamech brags and he boasts about his vengeance, about all the ways that he's taking revenge upon those who he believes have wronged him. His vengeance and his refusal to forgive is magnified seventy-seven times the actual weight of the supposed offense. If you cross Lamech, he will kill you. As Lightheart writes of Lamech, he makes vengeance the ruling principle of civilization. He establishes a city of vengeance. Yet this is completely at odds, Jesus tells us, with the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus immediately follows this command to forgive by introducing a parable that shows what the kingdom of heaven is like. Lamech established a city based on vengeance upon a magnified and exaggerated retaliation to any perceived wrong. Christ, however, bases his city upon forgiveness, which he shows us here in this parable. But we can go even further. The allusion to Lamech, I believe, is not limited to this call for forgiveness. It also connects directly to the following two passages that we, we find in Matthew, the passage about marriage and singleness, and the passage about children. Recall that Lamech makes this boast in the presence of his wives. In contrast to the Old Testament law, Lamech has taken multiple wives, and he is clearly trying to intimidate them with this show of aggression and vengeance. Whatever you do to me, O wives of Lamech, you will face my wrath 77-fold. And so, after speaking of forgiveness over vengeance, 
Christ again contrasts his kingdom with that of Lamech by highlighting the societal bonds of marriage and singleness. Even more, Lamech tells us, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. And it's important to note that the Hebrew word here translated as young man, yelled, can also be translated as boy or male child. And in fact, translating the word in this way would do better justice to the Hebrew technique of, of parallelism, wherein two statements are paired together, and the second statement expresses the same sentiment, but to a much stronger degree. I have killed a man for wounding me, and a child for striking me. But again, in contrast to Lamech, who will vent his vengeance on anyone, even the very youngest in his midst, Christ Jesus declares, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. We find here two completely contrasting kingdoms. And the three aspects of the kingdom of heaven that Christ here brings to the forefront are just as contrastive today. Christ's presentation of his kingdom pushes just as hard against many of our own modern social norms, the enduring social norms of the kingdom, the city of man. In particular, Christ teaches us that his kingdom is founded upon forgiveness, that it honors both marriage and singleness, and that it welcomes children. And so let us look at each of these in turn. First, the kingdom of heaven is founded upon forgiveness. Jesus, again, he gives us a parable to show us what the kingdom is like. There is a king who wishes to settle accounts with all of his servants, and one servant is found who owes the king 10,000 talents. This is an exorbitant amount. A talent is worth roughly 20 years of wages for a laborer. And this man owes the king 10,000 times that. However, as the servant pleads for more time to pay this debt, the king, moved with mercy, grants even more. He forgives the massive debt completely. And think about that. Suddenly, the servant's life no longer bears this oppressive burden. It no longer bears this wearying weight. But immediately after receiving such astounding mercy and forgiveness, this same service servant wholly denies forgiveness to a fellow servant who owes him a much, much more meager amount. Instead of forgiving, he seizes his fellow servant, he chokes him, and he throws him into a debtor's prison. This man has just been forgiven what would take a laborer 200,000 years to earn, and yet he refuses to forgive a fellow servant who owes him 100 denarii, what amounts to about a, a third of a year's work for a laborer, what could be earned in about 100 days. And so when the king finds out about this, he declares, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? The man, having received an amazing act of forgiveness, he refuses to show the smallest drip, the smallest morsel of forgiveness in turn. And since he is not living out the forgiveness, this forgiveness he's received, 
and even the most minute measure, his debt is thrust back upon him. And so Jesus concludes this parable by telling us, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. This is the city that stands in complete contrast to the city of Lamech. But this is also a stern warning to all of us that we ourselves stand in danger of being much, much more vengeful than Lamech. Jesus' call to forgive 77 times is a call to forgive without ceasing. But here in this parable, Jesus gives us a man who far outdoes Lamech's own rule of vengeance to the 77th degree. This man exercises vengeance upon another who owes him roughly 600,000 times less than what he has just been forgiven for. This man's vengeance is more than 600,000 fold. And yet Christ warns us that we all stand in this position. How so? Well, we ourselves owe a great debt to the Lord who has called us to love God and neighbor perfectly. Consider, think about the Bible's ethic of perfect justice. Consider what God demands of every human being. He commands us to love himself with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as our very selves. We're called to love God fully and completely every single instance of our lives. We're called to love every other human being in the very same way we love ourselves. For instance, we are called to rejoice with our friend when they have received some position, some honor, some job that we were both competing for, we're called to rejoice just as much as if we had been the ones who had got it instead. This is the ethic of the kingdom of heaven. And so you might ask, isn't this completely ridiculous? Isn't there a place for just being good enough? And I you know, I certainly understand this response. But please admit that this response rejects an absolute and uncompromising notion of both justice and goodness. And if we are willing to settle for less than God's perfect justice, then we are right back in the city of Lamech. And to be sure, we have all fallen short of this perfect ethic, and so we are all guilty before God. This is why we need forgiveness. But you might push back and ask, well, how can there even be forgiveness? Forgiveness assumes mercy. So how can perfect justice and, and mercy go together? Perfect justice demands that we bring full judgment upon all injustice. But mercy demands that we forgive injustice. And in that case, judgment upon injustice would not be carried out. Because that would be unjust. And in the same way, if justice was justly carried out on all injustice, then there would be no place for mercy and forgiveness. How can mercy and forgiveness go together with a perfect justice? Well, again, think about the debt. How is it that this man is forgiven this great debt? The king himself must take the debt upon his own shoulders. The king must take 10,000 talents from his own treasury. 
And in the same way, if we are to be forgiven to receive mercy and also to have perfect justice upheld, then this debt of justice must be absorbed. If we are to be forgiven, then our king must pay our debt in our place. Righteousness and perfect justice must be given to God and the penalty of the debt must be borne. But we have a problem here. Yes, God has and God is infinite righteousness. He's God. But his righteousness is divine righteousness. And our debt to God is a debt of human righteousness. It's a debt of the perfectly loving and just human life and the proper human punishment for rejecting this life. So yes, like the king in the parable, God must absorb the debt. But God must do more than simply lighten his treasury. God must become human to pay the debt. God must himself become the debtor. And so God the Son became human. He lived that life of that unflinching biblical ethic of love in our place. And he endured the penalty of the cross and the tomb that we merit for failing at living out this ethic. And so, while the city of Lamech is built upon one brother taking the life of another, of Cain killing Abel, of Lamech's ruthless revenge, the kingdom of heaven is built upon our great brother Christ giving his life for us. And so, the kingdom of heaven is founded upon the reality of forgiveness. We have been forgiven a great, great, great debt. Christ himself has paid it fully on our behalf. And because of this, the core of the kingdom of heaven rests upon forgiveness, and we must forgive. If, as Christians, our restored relationship to God is built upon the forgiveness of God in Christ Jesus, then yes, we should naturally be a people who forgive. And this foundation of the kingdom of heaven stands just as contrary to us as it did to Lamech. For instance, literature professor, writer, and all-around public sage, Alan Jacobs, he warns us that when we lose the Christian God, we lose the God who forgives. And when we lose the God who forgives, we lose a society that forgives. Jacobs writes, When a society rejects the Christian account of who we are, it doesn't become less moralistic, but far more so, because it retains an inchoate sense of justice but has no means of offering and receiving forgiveness. The great moral crisis of our time, as many of my fellow Christians believe, is not sexual licentiousness, but rather vindictiveness. Take note. Jacobs deems this moral vindictiveness, which stands wholly against the kingdom of heaven, to be the great moral crisis of our time. Let this bring the kingdom of heaven and its foundation of forgiveness into high relief. In our modern moment, we find a vengeance and a vindictiveness that reaches across all sections of our society. Again, in the words of Lamech, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. And this could be a motto for every single social media platform. Or, as theologian Miroslav Volf puts it, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. 
Why do we forgive? We forgive because we too are sinners who have received the costly forgiveness of Christ. We forgive because the ones that we forgive, they too are humans, the very creatures for which Christ died. The danger, however, is to forget that we are sinners and that they are human. Does this mean that forgiveness is easy? Absolutely not. But we must be careful here to remove any misconceptions that misunderstand what forgiveness actually is. For instance, forgiving your neighbor does not mean that we reject the consequences and repercussions of wrongdoing in this life. If we forgive those who have broken the law, we still uphold the just and legal consequences that come in response to this wrongdoing. If a person does something against us that merits time in prison, the Christian is called to forgive, but is not called to avoid or evade or circumvent the legal system. Theologian Oliver O'Donovan is helpful here. In speaking of the charge for us to visit those in prison, O'Donovan points out that an important aspect of this practice is as follows. Assuming one's prison sentence is just, which to be sure is not always the case, but assuming that it is, O'Donovan explains that this practice both supports and transcends and so relativizes the action of our society's legal system. In visiting prisoners who have received the justice of the state, the church does not repudiate the sentence the prisoner has received. The church actually upholds it. Yet the church also relativizes this sentence by communicating that this verdict is only temporal and not final. The final verdict belongs to God alone. The temporal courts of this earth are called to work justice in the affairs of human life. And assuming such workings are just, the church should support them. However, the final verdict on our life, it belongs to God alone. And this is at the core of Christian forgiveness. Unlike Lamech, we forgo vengeance because in the end, either Christ has graciously borne this eternal verdict of God's justice for us on the cross, or we ourselves will bear it eternally. This is the verdict that does not undercut, but simply relativizes the just verdicts of this world. We ourselves must bear the legal punishments that we incur against the just state. These are temporal. But Christ himself offers to bear for us the legal punishment that we have incurred against the just God. And this is eternal. And so vengeance, the most just and eternal of vengeance, is God's alone. And those who have been forgiven the very greatest debt, the very greatest punishment, we, in response, are called to forgive. All the same, others may not seek our forgiveness. They might not ask for it. They might not even want it. Nevertheless, we are to grant it. And this points out that forgiveness is distinct from reconciliation. Reconciliation requires that we forgive but also that forgiveness be sought out and received by the wrongdoer. 
Forgiveness, however, only requires that you forgive your neighbor in your heart, regardless of their response to the situation. And friends, we must forgive for the sake of our own souls. As the saying goes, refusing to forgive is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. We won't often feel like forgiving. forgiving. And most often it will begin with a commitment. And in your heart, it may be a process that you wrestle with for the rest of your life, especially if the sin against you is very great. And as a Christian, you are not called to hate the sin less, exactly the opposite. As a Christian, you are to more deeply lament and loathe the reality of evil in this world and the reality of evil in your heart. However, even while we hate the sin with greater intensity, we are called to love the sinner, a sinner like ourselves, all the more. To again quote Wolf, Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Both words remind us that forgiveness is a community practice. It binds people together, it strengthens and it restores relationships. It keeps us from becoming islands of vengeful isolation. And this brings us to our second point, the ways in which God calls us to exist in community. That is, the kingdom of God honors marriage and singleness. This too stands in great contrast with our modern moment. Christ here sanctions two ways to be human in Christian community. We are either to be in a marriage between one man and one woman, or we are to be single and celibate. Such a call contrasts against both our own culture and our worship of romance and sexuality, and Lamech's own harsh intimidation of his multiple wives. The Pharisees asked Jesus, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? They seem to be operating here with some notion of no-fault divorce. In response, Christ first brings them back to creation. He brings them to the creation of male and female as the marriage pair. He shows that, that there is a natural order to things. Just as the acorn must be given sun and soil and sunlight, and water, so there is a creational order for the human, for human sexuality, and for human marriage. To speak of a creational order, it may sound oppressive, but friends, only if there is something outside of us that can regulate us, can any set of ethical norms be more than a battle of wills, be more than my desires against yours. Philosopher Alistair McIntyre is especially helpful here. He points out that if there is nothing beyond human feelings and preferences and appetites that we can appeal to, if there is nothing outside the human that actually gives us meaning and makes a claim upon us, then all we have is my will and my preference and my meaning over and against yours. And if all we have are desires and wishes and preferences, then we cannot have ethics or morality in any traditional sense. There's nothing above our appetites or feelings or choices, choices to appeal to. Again, all we have is my will and yours, my meaning against yours. 
there is nothing that can call us both to account. You might find my view of sexuality immoral or improper or even horrifying, but what you really mean is that my view produces in you immoral or improper or horrifying feelings, which is a very different thing. Only if there is a creational order that calls us all to account can we have any basis for a sexual ethic that is not simply my will against yours. We may try to set up an ethic of mere consent, but in the end, this is an unserviceable base for morality. For instance, the exploitation exposed in the Me Too movement wholly problematizes the ethic of consent. What is consent? What is force? What is manipulation? What is coercion? The Me Too movement showed us just how blurry these categories are. Secondly, where does consent end? Would you allow a brother and a sister to marry? What about a parent and their adult child? If not, why not? You would have to appeal to something beyond consent to make your case. Thirdly, what if a woman desired and consented to be brutalized by a man, even in such a way that in other circumstances would lead to jail time for that man? If they both consent to it, does it make it okay? If not, then you will have to appeal to something other than mere consent. The point is that if we are going to have any kind of ethic, any kind of sexual ethic, then we have to make an appeal to something more than our own feelings and desires and preferences and appetites. Mere consent does not a sexual ethic make. We have to appeal to something outside of ourselves at, if we're going to properly call anyone to account. And certainly in this age of moral vindictiveness, there is no lack of calling others to account, even if we have no true basis for doing so. We must all ultimately make an appeal to something bigger than ourselves. And so this is exactly what Jesus does. He appeals to the created order instituted by God. And because of this creational basis for marriage, Jesus abhors divorce. Jesus, however, does say there is a place for divorce. This is because of our hardness of heart. But this possibility of divorce is not meant to make sin easier. This is not to put in place an allowance that would let a person simply divorce and separate from their partner just because they're tired and they want to find someone else. It's meant to protect the spouse that finds themselves in a harmful situation. The church has often made women especially stay in such situations. However, Jesus makes clear that there are valid reasons for divorce. If your spouse has committed adultery, then they have broken the marriage covenant and you are permitted to divorce. You are being protected against the hardness of heart of your spouse. This allowance for divorce is not meant to entice sin, but to protect one spouse from the sin of the other. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 also tells us that abandonment by a spouse is a valid reason for divorce. And here I believe we should understand abandonment as including one spouse creating a situation in which the other cannot live safely with them. If one spouse is abusive to another and or the children, in such a way that the victimized spouse cannot stay at home, I think this is best conceived as a kind of abandonment. 
Such matters should be worked through with the church community. And to be sure, the church community needs to listen very, very well because, again, it has often encouraged women to stay in dangerous relationships. And again, even though this wronged spouse is called to forgive the other, this does not mean that the wronged spouse is not to press charges if illegal things have been done. Again, we are called to uphold the temporal justice of the state. And a person who has divorced for valid reasons can remarry. However, if this is not the case and you have divorced and remarried, there is forgiveness. Again, the kingdom of heaven is founded upon forgiveness. But you must honor the marriage that you are in now. You must treat it with the seriousness and the commitment that Christ calls us to. And even when divorce is permitted, and in fact is the wisest solution, we do well to remember the words of Russell Moore. Divorce is dismemberment. Yet sometimes dismemberment is necessary. Divorce, even when it is the wise course of action, can never be anything other than a horribly painful experience. We must let this truth humble and sober us with regards to marriage. But the disciples, when they hear this, they say the following. If such is the case of a man with his wife, then it's better not to marry. But this Islamic talking. If we are forced to commit to another person with this kind of seriousness and good and bad till death do us part, then it's better not to marry. Who would want another person to have that kind of claim on my life? However, Jesus responds by saying that some are called to singleness and that this is a very good thing. It's not a kind of consolation prize given to us just because marriage requires this kind of commitment. Singleness, Jesus tells us, can be oriented to the kingdom of heaven in a way that marriage cannot. Yet this is a hard message in our modern moment. We are a culture obsessed with sexual fulfillment. As philosopher Charles Taylor writes of our culture's emphasis on romantic relationships, these relationships are seen to be the prime loci of self-exploration and self-discovery and among the most important forms of self fulfillment. This is where the church has taken far too much from the culture. In a culture obsessed with sexuality, the church has followed suit. Marriage is a very good thing, but it's not the greatest thing. The greatest thing is God alone. Yet the church has often marginalized the unmarried. We have only the weakest theologies of singleness and friendship. We, in a million different ways, have come to believe with the culture that a life without Romans cannot be a life of flourishing. And so we should not be surprised that persons often leave the church in pursuit of relationships that fall outside of God's prescribed framework for marriage. The church, just like the culture, has told them that romance and sex are essential for their flourishing. And so they are willing to do whatever they need to get it, even if it falls outside of God's creational order. In dishonoring singleness, not only are we dishonoring some of the greatest Christians in church history, both ancient and modern, we're also dishonoring the Apostle Paul in Christ Jesus himself. The kingdom of heaven deeply respects, deeply honors both singleness and marriage. And in fact, 
Its respect for both points to the fact that the kingdom of heaven transcends, stretches across all of human history. It's a kingdom that predates the city of Lamech and one that will outstretch the last lingering vestiges of our own culture. To again appeal to Oliver O'Donovan, this is a bit of a long quote, but it's a good one, and I'll, I'll unpack it. He says, Jesus taught that in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Humanity in the presence of God will know a community in which the fidelity of which marriage makes possible will be extended beyond the limits of marriage. The New Testament church conceived of marriage and singleness as alternate vocations, each a worthy form of life, the two together comprising the whole Christian witness to the nature of affectionate community. The one declared that God had vindicated the order of creation, the other pointed beyond itself to its eschatological transformation. So what does that mean? Well, again, Jesus explains that marriage points us back to the goodness of creation. And in a complementary way, singleness points us forward to the goodness of the resurrection, in which the church will be fully embraced by its bridegroom, Jesus Christ. The church then, in embracing both the married and the single life, the church exemplifies the two modes of life that define the history of God's people. In the married mode of human existence, we taste the life of Eden, of man and woman joined together and commanded to be fruitful. In the single mode of human existence, we taste the life of the resurrection, wherein we are no longer given in marriage, but feast with Christ Jesus himself at the wedding supper of the Lamb. In the church, we taste both the garden of Eden in marriage and the heavenly Jerusalem in singleness at one and the same time. In the church, then, we begin to indwell the very kingdom of heaven. And this brings us to our third and very, very brief final point. The kingdom of heaven embraces children. The whole sermon last week spoke of this dynamic of Christ's call to turn and become like children. And so here, let us simply remind ourselves that to receive children is to receive those who uniquely exemplify, uniquely image the person of the Son, the very one through whom we were created and through whom we are saved. To be a child is or should be to receive, to rest, to trust, to exalt in the love of another. To be the divine son is to receive the divine nature as a gift from the Father and turn back to the Father in love, the love of the Holy Spirit. To welcome and receive children is to welcome and receive those who most deeply image for us the person of Christ. Lamech kills the child for the most minor offense. Lamech's kingdom is one of vengeance and taking and of self-protection at any and all costs. Lamech's kingdom is one that destroys the love and community in which childhood can alone flourish. But to dwell in the kingdom of heaven is to receive that which we could never merit or never earn. It is to receive the greatest act of forgiveness and so to practice forgiveness in response. It is to receive God's good creational order for the human life and to look forward to its fulfillment at the resurrection. It is to receive Christ himself, the very king who gives his life for us. 
And so receive this kingdom as only a child can. All is gift. All is grace. Forgiveness. Vengeance. Our personal and community flourishing. All of these are the Lord's. Trust. Receive. And rest. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what your kingdom is like. And we thank you for the way that Christ Jesus has inaugurated it. We thank you for the forgiveness that we received, this wonderful, amazing forgiveness that the kingdom is built upon. May we rest and trust more deeply in it every day. And may we minister that forgiveness to all those that you have placed in our path. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.